I'm so excited, and I hope you are too, to jump back into our study of the book of Acts. Because what we've been seeing from Acts is that it brings back into focus what God has promised to do. That only God can do. And what He's called us to do by the power of His Spirit working through us. And I've said it a lot in this series, but could I just be honest with you for a minute? If you're like me, and I assume you are, despite the Spirit of God living in us, the people of God around us, and the promises of God for us, I get discouraged and tempted to give up on all that God has called us to do in this dark world. Does that make you feel better? I I wrestle with that. I struggle with that. I have temptations. I get discouraged. Yes. And so if that's you here today, I want you to understand you are not the first person to feel that way. In fact, one of our greatest human struggles that is most common, it's a common struggle, is not what to do, but how to keep doing it after things get hard and dark And you feel like quitting. On October 29th, 1941, when Hitler was raging across Europe and London had been decimated by nightly bombings, Winston Churchill gave a speech at the boarding school where he attended as a young lad. And contrary to urban legend, it's a cool story, it's just not true. Contrary to urban legend, he did not stand and say, never Never, never give up. And then sit back down. But part of what, it was a 20 minute speech. Part of what he did say is worth repeating today. He said, and I quote, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. In nothing, great or small, large or petty. Never give in. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us rather speak of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. And we must all thank God that we've been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable for the history of our race. To echo Winston Churchill, these are not dark days. These are great days to be alive and to be the people of God, living for the glory of God at such a time as this. He has a purpose for us. Stop wishing you lived at a different time in history. He has us here for such a time as this. And He is with us. With us. And so I want us to dig into a chapter today that I think can tell us what to do when you feel like giving up. And it tells us why you should keep doing it. I don't, I don't just need what. I need why. Why is what often keeps me going. Why? 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 Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. 
Acts chapter 18, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Acts 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens. Look at me a minute. So you remember, it's been a while since we were there. He just had a showdown on Mars Hill and debated the leading philosophers in his day. That's what just happened. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. I don't know if you know, but if you track with Paul through the New Testament, he often chose to work and not be a burden on the church. And his skill and his vocation was a tent maker, which is why sometimes you hear the term, a missionary is going to a closed country as a tent maker. They're going to work another job, but they're really there to share the gospel. That's where the term kind of came from. Paul was a tent maker. So were Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit. Some of your translations say, compelled or convicted by the Word. And testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Say it with me. Why? For I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's the same region. Corinth is located in Achaia. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. They are not talking about their law. They're talking about Roman law. If you did something contrary to the Roman law, bad news. So the Jews were considered, Judaism was considered religio licita, a legal religion. And they, all through the book of Acts, they keep wanting to make a distinction and saying these Christians are not like us. Well, the Roman emperor never bought into it. The Roman Empire always considered Christianity a subset or a fulfillment of Judaism. And the Jews keep saying, make them, make them illegal. Make them illegal. It's against the law. Watch what Gallio does. I love it. There, there are times when God can even use unbelievers to take care of it for you. When Gallio was proconsul, they rose up with one accord, brought him saying, This fellow persuades men to worship contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there'd be a reason why I would bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names, 
and your own law. Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sothenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Oh, what can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from this passage when you feel like giving up on all that God's called to do us in the, for us to do in this dark, broken world? Here's the first thing I want you to get. Number one, don't be surprised if you hit a season where you feel depleted and even depressed. That's right. Don't be surprised. Listen to me. If you decide to live for Jesus and on mission for his kingdom instead of your own little kingdom, oh, you're going to hit seasons where you will feel tapped out and even depressed in a way that other Christians don't. Why? Well, here's why, folks. Our enemy, Satan, and his spiritual forces of darkness cannot be omnipresent. They can't be in everywhere, everywhere at the same time. God can. Their resources are not unlimited. This is very good news. Now, here's the bad news. He has to choose who he's going to go after. Now, I don't want you to say, oh, good, I'm out. But tag, you're it. If you decide to live for Jesus... And try to have a bigger thought than just houses, cars, sport teams for my kids. If you decide to live for Jesus and on mission, thinking about his kingdom, tag, you're who he's going after. You're going to experience a measure of spiritual oppression and exhaustion that other Christians who are still just living for bigger houses, bigger cars, and getting all my kids on the right sport teams. Yes, I just said that. Mic drop. Get over living like the rest of the world for crying out loud. And yet those same people, oh, they are stressed. Yes, they are stressed chasing the American dream and getting their kids to all those cities with sports places. But they will not be oppressed and spiritually exhausted like you will. If he sees you just living like the rest of the world, bigger cars, bigger house, it's all about sports, he'll leave you alone. So... All that that you're feeling, that's your own doing. That's just simple stress. But there are Christians, lots of them sitting here, who when you decide to live for Jesus and on mission, thinking more about his kingdom than right here, right now, you will hit seasons of feeling depleted and spiritually oppressed or exhausted that other Christians don't know anything about. Right here in chapter 18, Paul is on his third missionary journey now. We're in Acts 18, right? He's on his third missionary journey. So just imagine the physical toll of travel alone on his body. He has traveled thousands of miles, mostly by foot, on roads that are not great. Never mind imprisonment and beatings. You can read in Corinthians where he says how many times he was beaten with rods, how many times he was stoned, how many times he was left for dead, how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was naked and cold and hungry and couldn't sleep. This man is worn out. Worn out. And on top of the physical exhaustion, it is very likely that Paul felt over. 
overwhelmed by the darkness and depravity of Corinth, the city of Corinth. You see, Corinth had a reputation for wickedness all over the Roman Empire. If you wanted to say something derogatory about a person's character, you would call them a Corinthian, you filthy Corinthian. They were so known. It was a port city, which meant lots of transient people. And I hope you know the human heart being what it is. When there's a place that people don't really settle down and people are coming and going, bad things tend to happen because people think, oh, nobody knows me here. I can get away with this. I can do this. It was a terrible, wicked, depraved, dark city. And so it's likely that he's physically exhausted and he is overwhelmed spiritually and emotionally by this city of Corinth. They they had the temple Aphrodite up on a hill, that's there in Corinth, that sent out its 2,000 prostitutes into the streets to ply their trade every night. This is where Paul is and what he is seeing and feeling all around him. Paul travels the 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. And as he arrives, you guys, it is very likely that he was overwhelmed with physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion. So that in his humanity, we tend to set up Bible characters as if they're superheroes, not like us. Not true. I love the Bible reveals and tells us it's not true. In his humanity... Paul begins to experience some of the same discouragements that we do. You say, how do you know that, Brad? Because he talks about it. When he writes the Christians in Corinth later, recalling what he was like when he was with them, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. The Apostle Paul. This is the same guy that just stood on Mars Hill and boldly debated the philosophers of day. But now he has hit the wall. I don't know about you. That really encourages me. Right? There are times in my life that that is how I feel. See, I know I'm not the Apostle Paul, but I fear that some of you do the same thing with me. That's Pastor Brad. He's just looking for the next pagan to talk to. He loves it. He eats it for breakfast. No, he doesn't. I get discouraged. I feel overwhelmed. I'm tempted to quit. There are times that I just want to slide through the crowd disengaged because I'm discouraged. I don't want to ask another question, take another risk, try to engage anybody. I just want to do my own thing and be left alone. I'm actually not an extrovert. I'm an introvert that became a convert of Jesus Christ. And so he's changing me and helping me do things that I would never choose to do on my own. Oh, I'm so encouraged that this is the Apostle Paul saying, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. He's hit the wall. He's feeling the weight of his own humanity. And the fragility of it. I used to get more surprised by it and concerned when I would just think, I just feel like crying. I just feel like crying. I just feel like weeping. I just feel like falling on the floor and not doing the next thing. And I would think, what is wrong with me? And now I always just say, it's Monday. That's how all pastors feel after the weekend. I mean, I have preached. I have had conversations. I have given. I've been asked questions. I've been told hard things. I've been told things you're unhappy about. I need to meet with you. I just go home like, 
I could cry on Mondays, which is why I don't take Mondays off. I don't want to feel that bad on my day off. I'll give the church that day. I come in. I come in weepy and just push papers around and catch up on emails to the glory of God. But I'm spent. And, and I've learned, don't make a decision on Monday. By Wednesday, there's a God again. And there's a resurrection. And there's hope. And He will help me. I hope that encourages you. I get discouraged and can feel depleted, yea, verily, even depressed and tapped out. This is where the Apostle Paul was as he entered Corinth. And so I want you to see something that I want to be careful now. I want you to see something sweet that God does not promise. We're going to look at some promises later in this message. I want you to see something sweet that God does not promise, but often provides. Did you know God can do some really sweet things and give us some really sweet gifts in the midst of hard places? We tend to associate sweet with easy. But our God can do some really sweet things in some really hard places. Why? Because He is God. He is sovereign. He can do that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 2. And Paul found. Oh, this is a city of 200,000 people, you guys. Corinth was five times bigger than Athens. And far more depraved. And in the midst of this city, Paul doesn't know this city. He finds Aquila. Oh, what are the cha- oh, what a coincidence. Shut up. Not a coincidence. It's the sovereignty of God. And oh, by the way, this couple, this was not easy what brought them here. But can you see God orchestrated a divine appointment for a discouraged apostle and a Christian couple to find each other. They had only recently been driven. Did they decide to relocate to Corinth because they thought it would be good for business? No. Claudius issued an edict that said all Jews, and by the way, he's talking about Christians. Because in that day, they made no distinction. Because you can find in secular history the comment that Claudius issued an edict to get rid of all the Jews in Rome because he was sick of them instigating talk about Christus. That's Christ. He's talking about Christians that were driven from Rome. And so Claudius... I mean, so Priscilla and Aquila, they have left their business, their home, their friends, their church. Only recently. And then in this massive city, God has a divine appointment for the Apostle Paul and this Christian couple. Who, oh, by the way, were not like a weekend of encouragement. They become his lifelong dear friends. And it happened in a hard place when he was at the end of himself. Now, I want to be careful You're not promised that. But God often will do that. Paul just headed into the marketplace to get a job. That's what he always did. And there he is, hanging out with tent makers and learns this couple is a Christian couple. And they don't just begin to work with him. They already have set up a home and they take him in to their home. Can you imagine how refreshing and encouraging that was to the Apostle Paul? To have another Christian to talk to, pray with, share a meal with. In this dark city, as he's feeling so spent. You guys, that's what God can do. And so I want to ask you, 
I don't know where you are today, how dark it is, or how depleted you feel right now. But God might have someone like that for you in a really hard place. Or, stay with me, God might want you to be that person for someone else in a really hard place. In other words, number two, don't. When we're discouraged, we tend to do this. Don't be guilty of thinking you're the last Christian left standing where you are. Nobody else believes this. Nobody else thinks this. That is one of the favorite lies that our enemy wants you to believe. Nobody else. It's you. You're it. Give up. Don't. 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 In fact, later in this chapter, you'll see that Aquila and Priscilla go with him, uproot and go with him to Ephesus and do ministry. And then in Romans chapter 16, we don't have to guess in Romans what he thinks about them. In Romans chapter 16, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ who risked their own necks for my life. We get no more details. We don't know what they did. We don't know what he's talking about. But folks... I don't know about you, that's pretty special. Most of us would live our entire lives and just have a handful of people that you would say, they would risk their own neck for my life. That's what Paul found. That's what God gave him in a really hard place. Aquila and Priscilla. Let me show you one more thing I think we can learn from this chapter. Don't stop Trusting God in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. We tend to think I can only trust God when I'm feeling it, when everything's great. Yeah, I trust God. You learn whether you're trusting God when it's dark, when it's hard, when it's not what you would choose. That's when you find out if you're trusting God or not. And make sure you understand this. Trusting God is more than a feeling. Trusting God is a mindset that changes what you think you can do next and what you choose to do next, even in the midst of hard circumstances. We tend to think, well, if God would change X, Y, Z, I would trust him. That's not trusting God. That's not trusting God. It's a mindset. It's not just a feeling. That changes. When you have this mindset, it changes what you think you can do next and what you choose to do next. It's way more than a feeling. So let's unpack it a little more. If you say, okay, what what would it look like? What does trusting God look like? To move forward and I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. I don't feel it anymore. Well, you can see it in the Apostle Paul. We can learn what trusting God looks like. Here's the first thing you'll notice. You keep doing what you were doing even after you're not feeling what you used to feel. Folks, one of the biggest hindrances for many Christians in living for what matters most is they think they cannot do something unless they feel it. That's the world, you guys. 
Oh, I love it when I feel it. I think I've felt it like twice. Right? Oh my goodness. The majority of life and living for Jesus Christ and following our Savior is comprised of doing what He's called us to do and walking across my feelings that are like unruly children saying, no, no, we won't go, no, no. And I'm like, I'm going without you. I'm going, you can come with me. I'd love to have feelings. But I'm going this way, either way. I'm going to do what I know God's called me to do, even after I stop feeling what I used to feel. And good news, often feelings will come back again. If you wait and say, I'm not going to do another thing until I feel it, you'll be stuck for a long time. And it's a horrible way to live. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, that, that's your problem. When you live by feelings and think you can only do what you feel, oh, my word, terrible, terrible way to live. You don't want to live feeling-oriented. You want to live principle and biblical commandment-oriented. What does God's Word tell me? What does God's Word tell me? And I want His Word to be renewing my mind. And as it renews my mind, I think differently than my feelings. And then I choose with this Holy Spirit in me to go with those thoughts versus what I'm feeling. Don't hear me saying it's easy, right? But, oh, it's so much better. And then... That's what trusting God looks like. You're trusting God. Because you're, you're leaning in and you're stepping forward. Not because you feel it. You keep doing what you were doing even after you don't feel what you used to feel. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 4. Look at what Paul does. And we know he said, I was feeling weak, fearful, much trembling. So what's he do? Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. But wait a minute, he's not feeling it. He's fearful, he's trembling, he feels weak. He did not just shut down at Aquila and Priscilla's place, curl up in a ball and say, I'm out. Sick of being mocked, sick of being ignored, sick of being attacked. I am just going to make tents to the glory of God and keep my ever-living mouth shut. Someone else can proclaim Jesus, right? Isn't that the temptation? He didn't. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, this is what he always did. We've seen this over and over and over. He would go to the synagogue and reason with them and persuade. He did what he had always been doing, even though he wasn't feeling what he'd always felt. He reasoned with them. Here's my question. What about you? What about you? What is it that you were doing that you've quit doing because you're not feeling anymore what you used to feel? Everything got harder, darker. You're discouraged and you quit. Oh, listen to me. Listen to me. Do it again. Do it again. Trust God and do it again. Trust God and do what you... Maybe it was you, you made a habit of going to the break room instead of just staying at your desk and, and catching up on emails. You're like, I just can't do it anymore. It's so awkward. There's so many things being said wrong. I just can't deal with it. You used to go and engage a little bit, at least be there. But now I go to my car. I, what is it that you were doing that you've quit doing because you're not feeling what you used to feel? Trusting God means you keep doing it. 
after you're not feeling what you used to feel and say, God, help me. And here's the good news. When you're on top of your game, often you don't see amazing things happen. When you're weak, what did he say in 2 Corinthians 12? When we are weak, he is, you'll need him even more. He'll show up even more in your weakness, in your fear, in your trembling. Oh man, there are times, listen to me, there are times I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to ask a question. I don't want to take a risk. I don't want to engage. There are times that I will have decided. I will have already in my little rebel heart declared, God, no, not going to happen today. Not going to happen. And then by his spirit, he'll prompt me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then there's an amazing divine appointment where he uses me. In my weakness, in my... But oh my goodness. And in case you're thinking, I bet some of you are. Well, that's what you're supposed to do, big guy. That was your choice to become a pastor. Yeah. We pay you to do that and we pray for you. Go, Brad. Start conversations, ask questions, engage our dark world. We're right back here for you, big guy. Let me help you then. Let me help you with this verse. Verse 4 does not mean preach a sermon. I know you may go your whole life not preach a sermon. I'm called to preach. Verse 4, and he reasoned. We've seen this already and I explained it, but I'm going to do it again. It's the Greek word dialegami. Sound like any English word we have? Dialogue. It was a word that meant a conversation largely comprised of questions and answers back and forth. Verse 4 is what we're all supposed to be doing. Most people don't want to talk to a pastor. I hope you realize that. I try to keep that like as as below the radar as possible. When they find out I'm a pastor, it's a showstopper. You're not. You're normal. You're not as scary. You can have conversations that it's hard for me to have once they know I'm a pastor. It's dialegami, conversation, questions, answers. And so that means Paul was not just talking He was asking questions and then listening to their answer, not forming his next statement so that he'd know what to say next and what to ask next. And every time I bring this up, I'll usually get a couple of emails or people that will literally say, Brad, I just don't know what to ask. I don't know the questions to ask. So now today we're going to settle that and you can never say that again. I'm going to reveal inside secrets. I'm going to give you my favorite questions. That's right. I love you. I'm going to give you my favorite questions, and they're actually in the bulletin. Here's what I'm talking about, a question that can start a spiritual conversation. What do you think happens after we die? I don't mean just walk into the workplace and just throw that out there. (laughs) But folks, I hope you've noticed, dogs die, grandparents die. Spouses die. People are talking about death. They fear death. They wish they didn't have to think about it. But death gets in our face on a regular basis. And when it happens, it's a great opportunity to just ask a question. And say, hey, what do you think happens after we're done? They're in the middle of talking to you about the funeral they attended. It's not that awkward. One day at the gym, even, this guy next to me just said, well, I'm going to die before you will. So I said, this wasn't our first conversation. I knew his name. So I said, okay. And when you do... What do you think is going to happen to you after you die? Ask a question. People are thinking about it. Hey, what do you think happens? Now, buckle up for the bizarre answer that you might get. 
but ask a question because they're thinking about it. Hey, I'll just sometimes say, do you have any thoughts about God? Let me help you. The entire world is not, has not gone atheist on us. That's a lie. Every human being knows there's a God and knows there's more and they think about it. Now they have bizarre notions of this God, but hey, you got any thoughts about God? And again, then just listen and don't attack. I mean, I've had people, smart people, talk about Martians and aliens and other planets and just keep smiling. You can't say that is so stupid. That's a showstopper. So here's my favorite follow-up. You ready? I mean, I'm giving you good stuff right here. When they finish saying what they believe, then ask, say, you know what? That's interesting. Instead of saying that's ridiculous. That's interesting. I'm wondering how you came to that conclusion. Doesn't that sound like disarming? I'm wondering how you came to that conclusion. Fool. No, and you don't do that. I'm wondering how you came to that conclusion. Based on what? And nine times out of ten, here's what I've watched happen. I'm not attacking, folks. An accusation hardens the heart. A question pricks the conscience. When you go after They just defend and hunker down with what they say they believe. If you ask questions, here's what I've seen. Nine times out of ten, as I let them talk about how they came to that conclusion, the look on their face, in their eyes, I can see they are feeling uncomfortable and awkward and silly about what they believe and the lack of substance for it and basis for it. Just keep asking questions. That's interesting. I'm curious. How did you come to that conclusion? And then, let me give you my all-time favorite question I've used. Well, let me back it up. Since we have a lot of Catholics in our area, one of my favorite, and and, I've used it a lot. Because they'll talk about good, right? Good. I'm good. Trying to be good. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Trying to, you know, I'm not like, I didn't, I haven't, I haven't. uh, Good. They'll use the word good. Favorite question. Hey, did you know that good people still go to hell? Now, I'm not saying they go to hell. But you see how safe this is? Did you know that good people go to hell? You guys, it rocks them. I have never had any other response but this. Well, then who does go to heaven? They just asked. I get to share the gospel and talk about Jesus. And they asked for it. You asked for it. I'm not cramming it down their throat. I mean, there was this. I think I've told you before, but there's an older gentleman in our neighborhood. And, and again, the key is you guys... Just care about people. Start with that. Ask Jesus to give you his heart for people. People matter to God. They're created in his image and he died for them. So you learn people's names and you just care. Every conversation doesn't have to be spiritual. In fact, please don't. But this is a guy where we kept his dog. I'd helped him sort out television issues, if you can imagine. I'm so non-technical. But he would call and say, I don't know why my what, whatever won't work with my whatever. And I'd say, God of the heavens, help me. Do a miracle and allow me to help this man. And he would. I'm like, I can't even do it at my own home. But for the glory on kingdom, on mission, he'll let me do it for somebody else. And so we, we often would have conversations where he would say, you know, I've never done such and such and such. I've been faithful to my wife our whole marriage. And, blah, 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 blah. and I said, did you know that good people still go to hell? And literally he said, well, then who goes to heaven? And I shared the gospel and I did it. But he didn't remember the answer, which was not a bad thing because then we were having a graduation party in our backyard for one of my kids' high school graduation. We had music going. I had a DJ. It was so loud you couldn't even talk. 
And we're at a picnic table with the same guy and some others of my neighbors. And awkwardly out of the blue, we were not talking about heaven and hell and death and life. And he just says, he has to yell it. Brad told me that good people still go to hell. This is on top of Casey and the Sunshine Band. And then he told me who does go to heaven, but I can't remember. Brad, tell us who goes to heaven. I got to scream the gospel to five people. There were neighbors sitting there that I had never shared the gospel with. That's what happened. That question had not left him. Folks, this is what this looks like. Now, my all-time favorite of them all. If you were to die today and stand before God, and you will... And he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Oh, my goodness. I don't know why, you guys. But when you just say, what do you believe about who goes to heaven? They'll tell you this stuff. For some reason, they'll tell you the truth with this. I don't know. It's like, and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? You will hear what they really think. And I'm telling you what, you will not hear Jesus mentioned once it'll be all this other stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff you won't hear jesus and you'll know they don't get it you don't get it it's not what you're doing it's not the ten commandments it's not the golden rule it's not it's not it's not and there's a perfect opportunity to say jesus came and kept the ten commandments we could never keep them and it's finished he did for us what we could never that's why he went to the most people do not understand why jesus went to the cross and died and rose again It's my favorite question. So now, we're ending early. Go. No, I'm just kidding. You have questions that you can ask. These are the questions that I keep rumbling in my heart ready. So trusting God means you don't stop doing what you were doing after you're not feeling it. But let me show you what else you see with Paul. Here's what else you see about trusting God. When you're trusting God, you keep looking for opportunities even in the midst of opposition. One of the biggest misnomers, and I I get so tired of hearing it, is Christians make these associations. If it's easy and everything goes well, God opened the door. And as soon as it gets hard, well, I guess God didn't want me to do this. God's not a part of this. I got to get out of here. You do not see that in the Bible, you guys. You can be doing exactly what God wants you to do. In fact, when you do, you are likely to face opposition. So you don't want to tuck tail and clear out as soon as you face opposition. You're probably doing the right thing and in the right place because our enemy is rearing up and resisting you. Paul faced opposition. Look at it in verse 6. But they opposed him and blasphemed. Some of your translations say and reviled him. That word revile means to heap abusive speech on someone. Does this sound like... What's happening today, right? In our culture, it's no longer, hey, if you want to believe that, fine. Just get over in that corner and believe it and think it. Oh, no, they're going after us. You can't think that. You can't say that. You're, you're a hater. They're slandering us and abusing. It's not new, you guys. They heaped abusive speech on him and opposed him. So what did he do? He just went next door. And again, what a God thing, Right? He didn't just find a house where he could meet. Oh, the house next door to the synagogue. 
was a man named Justice who was a God worshiper. And he started meeting. That was gutsy, you guys. He started meeting right next door to the synagogue where they've gone to war. That word for opposed in the Greek in verse 6 means to line up in battle array and go against someone. The leaders have gone to war against him. Our culture has gone to war against us. But folks, even in the midst of opposition, God can work. His power is still there. God, you say, how do you know, Brad? Well, look what happened. Fierce opposition, abusive language. And look at verse 8. Massive revival. It didn't cause the people in Corinth to say, I want nothing to do with Christianity. Look how Paul's being abused. Look at what they're saying. about. Don't believe that. And it's not just somebody. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue that had kicked him out, believed. And all his household. And many Corinthians, when they heard, believed. That's what God can do if you stick around in the face of opposition. Many believed. Now, so far, all I've talked about is what we should keep doing when we feel like giving up. But I want to save my final minutes to give you the why. Why? Oh my goodness, there's a glorious why tucked into this passage. And it's almost awkward. It's almost like an interruption, an interlude. But it's right in the middle. I hope you you heard it and saw it as I read through there. There is a glorious why we should keep doing these things in verses 9 and 10. Look at it again. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. Say it with me. For I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this wicked, dark city. Now, if your Bible is like mine, then those verses in 9 and 10 are read. Because this is the resurrected Jesus Christ speaking to Paul. And here's what I think is cool. When we're discouraged and tempted to give up, We often think, oh, I need an explanation and new information. If God would just give me an explanation for why this is happening and some new information, I could go on. If you read your Bible, I think you'll find God rarely gives us an explanation or new information. You know what he gives us regularly? A reaffirmation of promises that he's already given us, but we've forgotten. We've lost sight of them. We're not remembering That's what he gives Paul. You realize Jesus already said this. This is a promise that Paul knew he had. Remember Matthew 28, 18 to 20? When Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That includes Corinth. I know it's hard. I know they're opposing you. I know it's dark. I know it's wicked, depraved. Includes Corinth. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded and lo... I am with you even to the ends of the earth. He reaffirmed to Paul a promise that Paul already knew, but he needed to hear it again. 
Folks, that's another reason why you will not continue to lean in and ask questions and take risks and try to engage if you've stopped reading God's Word. If it's just CNN News and the Discovery Channel and Netflix binge, you'll shut up. You'll be silent. I have to have the promises of God regularly running through me to say, oh, that's right. First, to know that people are dying and going to hell. You read Revelation and it's terrifying. And it's coming and it's going to happen. I'm reading God's word and it's helping me keep the big picture and know what matters most. But what I regularly get are his promises. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never, never, never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we can say the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Promises like Isaiah 41. I am the Lord. Fear not. I am with you. Promises like Isaiah 43. I am the Lord. Do not be afraid. You are mine. I've called you by name. If you'll read your Bible, how much of it? Notice one of those was from the New Testament. Two great promises from the Old Testament. I am regularly reminded of the promises of God that I am not alone just trying to do this. Even if God in his mercy had not given Paul the sweet gift of Aquila and Priscilla in a hard place. He gave him a fresh affirmation of his promises. I'm with you, Paul. And then what he does is he doesn't just remind him of the promise. He expands on that promise. I hope you heard there's two things that Jesus said. I am with you. Verse 10. And I have many people in this city. What is he talking about? Well, don't make a mistake. He's not saying there are actually lots of Christians here. You'll see a Christian concert soon and you'll meet a bunch of them. No. He is not saying there's already a lot of other Christians. He's saying there are a lot of people for whom I died and I'm going to draw them to myself and save them. But you have to keep doing what I've called you to do. It doesn't just happen. God uses us. Keep asking questions. Keep dialegami. Keep conversing. Keep risking. Keep leaning in. And I will save people. There are people in this city I intend to save. But I'm going to use you. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing. I'm with you. And I have people I'm going to save. I'm with you. And I hope you realize that's not just Corinth. You guys. It's southern Indiana. It's Fort Thomas. It's Independence. It's Florence. It's Cincinnati. It's Pendleton County. God has people for whom Christ died. And his spirit is at work. But he uses weak, fearful, trembling people like us to keep speaking the name of Jesus. To keep asking a question. To keep running our faith up the flagpole. And to start a conversation. Some of those people that Jesus has died for are living in cities where you live, are working in places where you work. We've got to stop deciding who's a candidate for Christianity. Oh, none of these people, they would never. God can save anybody. We already saw it in Acts 9. He knocked Paul, who was Saul, to the ground And Saul was in the middle of... You might have someone at work, you think, they are the most hostile, obnoxious Christian haters ever. Great. God just might love to save them because you had the courage to invite them to church anyway. Oh, they would never come. You don't know that. You do not know what's going on inside. You know what's going on outside. You do not know what's going on inside. In the places you shop, 
in the places you live and in the places where you go to play. Some of these people who he said, I'm going to save people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And he didn't say only if it's not fierce opposition, only if they don't go to war against me, only if it's easy. And so as we end, it was a lot about what he's called us to do. So I want to end with you celebrating what Jesus has done. He's already done the heavy lifting, you guys. This is a guarantee. This is not like maybe some will come. No, guaranteed. Let me show you what Jesus has already done for us that we could never do for ourselves, which is why we follow him and try to live on mission for a bigger kingdom. Turn to Revelation 5. Revelation chapter 5. And I want you to stand in honor of our Savior. Revelation 5, standing. As I begin reading in verse 7. Then he came, Jesus, and took the scroll out of the right hand of him, God the Father, who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Not by keeping the Ten Commandments, not by following the golden rule. We are saved by the blood of Jesus, his finished work. Who's going to be saved out of every tribe, tongue, language, nation, And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for a savior Thank you for the finished work of Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit in us. Thank you for the people of God around us, giving us each other. And thank you for your promises that are for us and that are unchanging. Thank you for the power of the gospel that is unstoppable. Thank you for direct access to your throne day and night. Because of our great high priest, Jesus. Oh God, help us to not just see these as dark days, but great days to be the people of God, living for the glory of God at such a time as this. Use us, use us for your glory in our weakness, in our fear, in much trembling. Use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.